welcome to the podcast. My name's Todd Fraser. With me today is Dr Neil Orford, a great friend of mine and Director of Intensive Care at Geelong Hospital in Victoria, Australia. Among Neil's many research interests are the long-term outcomes and welfare of survivors in critical illness, and it's my great pleasure to have him on the podcast today. Welcome, Neil. Thank you, Todd. It is a pleasure to be here. It's been a long time trying to get you on the podcast, and I'm glad I finally have. Um, Can I start with your recent publication in Critical Care Medicine? Can you tell us about that paper? Uh, Yes. The the paper was a retrospective audit of fractures in survivors of critical illness. The Geelong Osteoprocess Lab, which I'll call GOSS from here on, because it's easier, is a whole population osteoporosis and bone density database and prospective ongoing study have got an over 80% retention rate long term. Yes. So we, have, we know that GOSS have got fracture rates and bone density on men and women. Uh, it's a prospective study. It's an electoral roll, random sample, about 5,000 of each. Um, and we have an ICU electronic database that goes back 20 years. Uh, so we, and we can look at, this is the first step, just to see if there's any signal out there of bones. Fractures in the ICU population... Uh, and we looked at survivors of ICU who'd been ventilated for greater than 48 hours. So we wanted the sort of, you know, sicker, real ICU patients. Um, and we looked at their fracture rate after ICU. So when the, the, we did that by linking databases. We used the same ascertainment method for fractures that GOSS used. So it's the same method. Um, and found that in... So we reported fracture rates for after ICU, which was interesting. No one's ever looked at that before. Um, but we found that in older women, um, over 60-year-old women, there was a significantly higher fragility fracture rate. So age-matched women in, the, in GOSS, so community women, had a lower fracture rate than, than, than age-matched women in ICU. There's a, there was a signal there, and it was significant. Um, so that was the, the first sort of moment. And then I looked into it. This is probably back in 2007. Um, realised that there had been some literature published, um, some by Greet Vandenberg, uh, looking on bone turnover in critical patients, critical mm-hmm. patients. There were some isolated case studies in Guillain-Barre patients um, reporting bone density loss and fractures, um, and some other papers from the US which had reported increase in bone turnover. So that sort of set the, the biological mechanism up, that there was some evidence that in as early as 48 hours post-critical illness, patients started turning over bone. And the markers that have been measured suggested that uh, it was a bit like Paget's sort of uncoupling of bone resorption and formation. And so that's the, that was the crux of the paper. It hasn't been described before. Now, a lot of people uh, could say, well, that's just because sick patients come into ICU and that's all you're describing. If this is real... And it's a retrospective audit, so you know there may be methodological problems. But if this is real, then it's either that they have low bone mass to come in, or ICU represents a new risk factor for bone loss, or both. I don't think it matters. There's a public health possi- possibility to intervene here. If we're if there's a group of patients who are fracturing, and a hip fracture costs sixteen thousand dollars of hospital stay and has associated mortality, vertebral fractures have associated morbidity. Uh, no matter what the cause, there's possibly a group of patients who we can detect who have low bone mass and intervene. Having said all that, I'm 
you know, interested to know is the, are the fractures due, is there bone loss due to ICU? So um, if you come into intensive care and you're an elderly woman, your risk of a subsequent fragility fracture is significantly higher than matched population. Is yes, that the, the yes, inference? From that's the what it looks like. From a retrospective study, big. We had 800 ICU patients compared to 5,000 population patients. So yes, yeah. that, that's the message. Um, and the question is why. Um, that was my question. Why? Why? What are the mechanisms that would lead to that? Especially after a period, say, of 48 hours of ventilation. How how can that have such a major impact on patients? Yeah, look, it's... I, I, so the, the previous biochemical data that had been published um, suggests that after 48 hours they start turning over bone. I, I think it could be that it's critical illness alone, inflammation you know, cytokines, endocrine abnormalities. The other possibility is that that it's that they spend a long time in hospital, um, that they are they lose their mobility and weight bearing, um, and that there's a series of, of events that lead to loss of bone. So it's not just the intensive care period itself, but the overall illness period of the patient. So it may not be the intensive care period at all, but there are things like hemofiltration probably leeches a bit of a mineral out of your bone. Heparin, there's some effect. Statins may be protective. So there's all the medications we give, the interventional therapies like dialysis. And then I think the fact that you probably lose vitamin D or your vitamin D goes down in your ICU, there's lots of things like that. And then maybe there is how long you're in hospital, chronic disease, um, you know, loss of mobility, that effect. There are similarities between the hip fracture population and ICU pop, in the ICU pop, they come into hospital with something wrong and they die in a year. And they have a high mortality at one year, which yep. we do. We show like about a 20% mortality in our yep. survivors. That's yep. very high. And we don't know why they're dying. Right. So, and, I, and I'm still just trying to think about that because I think he's probably got a point that there, there is a... It's, it's sure, they might be losing bone, but bone loss on its own, and low BMD predicts mortality. Yep. Um, so there is something else under there that I... Maybe bones are just a marker for something else that's wrong with you that yeah. leads to deterioration in your health. So what's the next step in teasing all this out? So the next step is we're currently doing... Where, uh, so the next step is we're uh, performing a prospective observational study of bone mineral density and bone markers in ICU patients. Um, we're enrolling 125 patients. We've enrolled 85 uh, as of this week. Um, we're performing all their vitamin D bone biomarkers, in, uh, turnover markers in their blood um, and electrolytes. We're collecting all the information on known risk factors for osteoporosis um, and their, all their interventions in ICU and medications in ICU. We perform a BMD on discharge from ICU and then a BMD in a year. Um, we also perform their vitamin D and bone markers at one month and one year. And at one year, we're also doing getting them back and doing a questionnaire of quality of life. Uh, so we've had 30 patients completed. Um, and so far, uh, I've had the BMD techs ring me on four occasions and say, we've never seen such low BMD in a man. Um, so again, that's anecdotal, but it looks interesting. There are so there is. I have one man who has lost twelve percent of his BMD in a year. A man should lose one percent. So 
and okay, this will get teased out, and we're going to compare this group to GOSS. So we're going to look at rate of change over a year compared to GOSS, and then we'll also look at baseline. Um, and I think from that, we will have a big enough cohort to say, is there a difference in rate of change at BMD? We won't have a big enough cohort to say, is their baseline different to GOSS? Because we would need about 3,000 patients. Um, but we'll, and we'll have a lot of risk factors that we can look at. Is there anything that predicts uh, you know, low BMD? There's also all this other interesting stuff we're getting about vitamin D, which has been in the literature a lot. And so I've now got 80 patients that have BMD when they hit ICU, um, of which over 50% have low vitamin D. But the majority of them by one month and one year are back to normal. Um, and I think that's got some, it's just it's a separate interesting issue about endocrinology and ICU. You know, the whole ICU literature is littered with failed attempts to correct endocrinology, and maybe we're going to see that, that again. And, um, that sort of long-term follow-up may show that it's a marker of how bad you are, but yep. maybe fixing is not necessary. Yep. So, uh, so that's, to me, it's very interesting. This is the, one of the fascinating parts of the paper that you published was that it was yet another of a number of papers that have come out recently looking at alternate outcomes to mortality in ICU patients. Why do you think there's the interest in that? There's a very good talk uh, Ronaldo Bloma gave, has given at uh, the Clinical Trials Group Conference and um, at the ASM last year, the ANZICS ASM last year, talking about delta mortality and how the change in mortality that we're seeing in clinical tri- in IC clinical trials is very small. And I can't remember exactly, it was, it's now sort of 1.5%. And there's a lot of trials that are saying they're going to call, that are powered to detect a bigger change in mortality and they're not detecting it. And again, looking back to me, and maybe this is the advantage of a fresh pair of eyes, is that we've gone from when we were registrars, it was ICU mortality that mattered, get them out the door. No one even thought about anything. They're out the door and you forgot about them. That's how it seemed to me. Then it moved to hospital mortality, then 28-day mortality. Nice Sugar reported 90-day mortality. Uh, and now there's some long-term outcomes from North America and some from Australia. Um, but, you know, Margaret Herridge's ARDS papers at one and two year mortality and some quality of life. Um, so I think we, ICU is, has come a very long way, particularly in Australia. Our mortality is the lowest in the world. It's very hard to achieve significant improvements in mortality. Uh, so maybe we need to look at something else. Now, they, the cardiologists moved to composite outcomes, but maybe we need to be looking at other things like uh, morbidity. So what quality of life outcome markers are there that we should... Should we be using those? So there, is there an accepted one that we should look at? Well, there are. There's a lot of quality of life studies. So there's SF36 has been the most widely used, which has a number of domains on you know, physical, psychological, health, and uh, so... And there's EQ5D. And so there's a number of... There's a, there's a lot of things out there. I... And again, I, I, I don't know if I'm alone in this, but I think that all they have shown us is that quality of life has reduced, is reduced compared to the normal population, that they're in a lot of populations, of ICU populations, um, for instance, cardiac surgery, their quality of life improves, and for other long-term patients, their quality of life improves. And there have been, there's a, there is a big body of evidence now about quality of life after ICU in various populations, mm-hmm. ARDS, elderly people, cardiac surgery, but none of those tell you 
why. And I think there is a glaring gap in the literature. Um, and that's what I'm interested in. Now, the other so thing is NHMRC, you know, research bodies, national research bodies appear to be disinterested in funding large observational studies. And particularly, it seems large observational studies which just use quality of life as a um, outcome. And I can see their rationale. Uh, quality of life is not an intervenable disease. Now, let's say fractures is something in bone loss. Let's say we show that there are a group of patients who are at risk of bone loss and subsequent fracture. And we know mortality as a result. Um, that's an intervenable, you can target that. It's an intervenable disease process. So you can give them, you could have given them bisphosphonates. There's now a whole new range of drugs that are much less toxic um, and that you could give them in ICU or discharge of ICU. You could add you know, vitamin D, you could add physical therapy um, and potentially reverse their bone loss, reverse their fracture rate and improve um, their health outcomes and their quality of life down the track. But quality of life isn't the outcome there. It's, you know, it's fractures and bone loss. And I think that there has to be a focus on finding the biological mechanisms behind quality of life. So we know that quality of life is reduced in survivors of ICU. And there are... So, and what you're suggesting is that there may be defined reasons for that and we may be able to step in. Yes. And I, again, this is just... Um, so there was, a, there was a paper that has been published ahead of print in critical care medicine um, called Improving Long-Term Outcomes After Discharge from Intensive Care, and it's a stakeholders conference in North America as part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine. And they talk about the gaps in the research and the gaps in literature. Um, and in particular, they talk about mechanisms of post-ICU morbidities, which is, and there's, there's one paragraph, but for me, I could spend the rest of my career looking at that. Um, so, not like nice sugar. That you know, the, I think I think that's the first study that's looked at ninety-day mortality as a primary outcome, and they showed an increase with glycemic type glycemic control. But why? You know, that it, there's no e explanation. There was increase in cardiovascular morbidities. There was a really good editorial, I think, by in one of the endocrinology journals, where they said, well, maybe. Um, it's due to counter-regulatory hormones increasing in tight control. So they have gone, stress hormones all go up, and then you take away their insulin, and something happens to them for the next three months that has cardiovascular endothelial effects. That's all very plausible. You know, you know, there's a link between diabetes and cardiovascular disease. That's kind of fascinating. Um, and I, I mean, it was a great study, but gee, don't you wish you had all the data now on what happened to their diabetic control and their endocrinology for the next 90 days, the next year? That's intervenable. You could say these people should be followed up. Let's say that, you know, that is the case, that you follow them up, look at their um, any derangements in their glucose control, maybe intervene. Um, There's a paper in JAMA uh, two, a few weeks ago looking at. Um, the uh, prescription of medications in line with best practice for hospital and ICU survivors. I think in the US, big, you know, um, hundreds of thousands of patients, Medicare link between hospital admissions and Medicare or Medicaid, whatever it is, prescriptions. And they showed that, and they looked at, I think, lungs and heart, sort of chronic heart, chronic lung disease, where there's some pretty good evidence base. And patients who had who are non-compliant by 90 days post hospital or ICU discharge 
had a higher um, readmission rate, and in the ICU population, they had a higher mortality. And, you know, that seems blindingly obvious. We've got patients who come in with acute or chronic heart failure, we ramp up the care, do all this stuff, they get thousands of dollars spent on them in hospital, we boot them out, and no one bothers to see if they're back on their medications again, or are compl- are compliant, you know, they're compliant with best practice. Um, that's intervenable, you know. Um, so maybe it's, you know, like why are our patients dead at a year? 20%, so 20%, this study we're doing now, the prospective observational study, 20% of them are dead at a year. Um, that's, that's a high mortality. Um, so you can get them over that acute critical illness, but you get them home and then something is yeah. increasing their mortality. Yeah, I've got no, no idea what it is. And, um, and then there's the, the ones who are alive but not well. Um, and so why? Is it that their heart failure is not well controlled? Do we, you know, they need some aspirin? Is it, is it endocrinolo- endocrinological? Uh, is it weakness? Um, and we know they're weak from the follow-up studies, but is there anything we can do about that? Do you think that this sort of... Do you think there's enough awareness of that downstream care need once they leave the ICU? Yeah, I think it's growing. And there is, I mean, if you sort of Margaret Herridge, um, there's some UK, Canada, US... And in Australia, groups as well, in the Austin, like Liverpool, what, what a lot of the studies haven't done is uh, some fairly intense, expensive um, looking at these people. Next plan in Geelong is, and the, with some help from the uh, ANSIC RC and some of the people there who are interested, is that we start looking into that. So this prospective bone, bone mineral density study we're doing has kind of and I've never done this before, but it's proven to me that I can get patients back at one month, one year, interview them face-to-face, do investigations. They're all really keen to be part of it. They're from all over southwest Victoria, is that we can do more. And so, you know, maybe we should be doing ECHO um, at one month and one year, you know, HbA1c at one month and one year, BMD at one month and one year, MRI of their brain at one year, you know, our bone... Um, nerve conduction studies, you know, let's try yeah. to work out exactly what's going on. You get them to keep di- falls diaries, that's what they do for fractures. So um, I'd just be fascinated. And I look at compliance with best practice medications, you know, look at um, how much they visit specialists, GPs, you know, uh, just try to work out exactly what's going on with these people and, and are there any opportunities to where we can see something that we can intervene on. Uh, I mean, I guess there's PTSD, you know, there's clearly some evidence, a lot of evidence about psychological um, issues after ICU, both in survivors and families. You know, that can be intervened on. Again, it's been pretty expensive. Um, I've just got to get some money and some enthusiasm from other people. And You mentioned an interesting concept of the, the ICU outpatient clinic almost is, is one thing that you, you sounded like you were referring to. Is there evidence or has there been any experience with that? There was a there was a study in I think it was called Practical in uh, the UK where they had nurse led follow up clinics and showed no change in outcome, um, but uh, maybe it has to be a lot more specific than that. And you know why have a clinic where we actually don't know what the diseases you're looking for are yet? The Austin are uh, doing it, I believe. Um, uh, people are talking about them. Mm. I guess the the barriers are it's expensive, um, and if you don't. I'm not quite sure you can justify the clinic outside of research because you don't know what you're looking for and what yeah. diseases they've got. 
I mean, the, the problem is that it's not attractive to national research councils and you know, funding bodies because it's observational research. So um, there was a, you know, there have been numerous bids, you know, in Australia as well for NHMRC funding for large multi-centre prospective observational outcome trials and clinics and they get knocked back. And um, um, so, you know, I can see where I can, I can see Geelong fitting into that is that we could do it locally as a pilot um, if we can find some outcomes that are interveneable, including bones. Uh, it might provide some evidence to support this you know, is worthwhile it. doing. Yeah, I mean, I obviously you want to do some multi-centre interventions. Um, but, I, you know, I think it's hard, but I've got a fair bit of my career left. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of slow, this sort of research, that's all. Yeah. Well, Neil, thank you very much for your time today. It's a fascinating area. It will develop significantly over the next few years, and I'm sure that you'll be at the forefront of it. Thanks very much for your time today. Thanks. If you enjoyed today's podcast, why not check out our websites, Critique and Crit Nurse. Our websites are leading providers of online critical care education and include podcasts, journal clubs, online presentations, modules and much, much more. You can also join our free blog to help you stay up to date. Our websites are found at www dot crit-iq.com and www.crit-nurse.com You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter or visit us at the iTunes store. While you're there, check out our data interpretation and CT interpretation apps. Critique, making critical care education easier.